Hello, Chris. Great, it's recording. It uh, is recording. You know, I've listened to the intro of the last couple episodes that you've put on, mm-hmm. and I think that both Cameron and yourself both crave to have this kind of energy-filled <laughs> beginning. That's why I brought you on. And I'm not entirely sure that uh, that you achieve it, because both of you have this kind of really nice, calm, equanimous vibe to you that's not filled with like this passion and excitement and vibrance in your words. And like, I do feel like... like I do feel like, yeah, exactly. Let's go eat some thistles. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be on the show again. I have a blast doing this. And uh, I'm excited to talk about what we're about to talk about too, because I think it's a world that both of us have a lot of interest in. We have a good amount of uh, knowledge in. And well, with NAB coming up, it's just this curiosity swelling of what's around the corner as well as how much we can jam into our brains. Well, and yeah, we're trying to... Uh Basically, the, the, the topic today is going to be video and photo crossover. And this is just a way to warm up people that are listening that have absolutely no interest in video into hearing some further video conversations soon. So if you don't already know, NAB is the National Association of Broadcasters, and it's an enormous um, video uh, or yeah, m- moving picture production event in Vegas uh, that's kind of all things about producing and um we're going to both be there along with Jordan, who's another guest and we'll all do a podcast there, but it's all going to be about video. So if you have no interest in that, this is our day to get you interested as a photographer in, in basic video production. Even if you're not aspiring to do something huge, it's uh, something you can probably do with the camera you already own. So, yeah, you know, I want to just correct one thing that uh, you might have not been quite aware of, and you're definitely going to be aware when we get to Vegas NAB is the National Association of Broadcasting. It isn't strictly about filmmaking. It's about anything that broadcasts in entertainment. So they have an entire hall for audio and Mm. for this exact thing we're doing right now, for recording, for podcasting, for radio, for all these things. It It is the biggest mecca of information to do with broadcasting. That reminds me, um, I will, I don't know if you are going to be, but there's also NMX happening at the exact same time. The new media expo happens beside it and it's a separate ticket, but I'll be at both of these. So if you listeners, anybody is going to be at either of them, then, uh, hit us up and we'll meet up and say hello. But, um, yeah, so the new media expo is about specifically about podcasting and blogging and, uh, you know, video on the web. And I don't know, every time I talk about NAB, I have a hard time, I think, making it sound exciting because the word broadcasting doesn't get average people very excited. And then I try to explain it more and I realize like there are so many facets of what's happening at that event. It's, it's hard. I don't have yeah. an elevator pitch. It's wild. The thing that I even had to sell myself on, because essentially when I went the first year, I was sold on it being the absolute cream of the crop with networking. So I knew mm. I needed to go into a more collaborative art and I needed to get those relationships that were necessary for the collaboration. So networking being important to me, I felt like that's at least my first major excuse to go there. And then when I went there, was that the year we were both there? Was that your first year? That was my second year. Oh, okay. I think maybe, I don't remember. I've only been once. So. Um, yeah. So when I had to sell myself almost to give myself the elevator pitch to go the second year, because I've now been three or four years, I had to kind of explain why is it relevant other than just who I'll talk to and, and who I'll see, why is it relevant to go? And to give kind of a broad spectrum of the kind of experiences you get just on the floor, there's things that go from 
you know, the next aerial system for filming, um, you know, high quality, high production, Hollywood style filmmaking all the way down to, you know, YouTube filmmaking for aerial and, um, quadcopters and drones. And then you'll walk across to another hall. And the first year I went, I went to a visual effects department and I watched two sequences of Tron being visually like the effects were being broken down into the immense complexity that was in a program called nuke made by the foundry. And to, to, to say that it wasn't overwhelming is a lie. Like I was completely oversaturated with how much there was to pay attention to because there just is not only when you go to these things, do you have to learn that some of this stuff exists at all, but then every single company is showing you the new way they're doing that thing. So they're pitching the new product that's, that's blowing away everyone. So, and well, what I find a lot of the time is just the little watching demonstrations and listening to other people talk. It's the subtle things that they might just throw into a conversation. That's not even about their product, but you just pick up on like what, they are doing or the way they're holding their camera or the way that you can just feel the industry moving forward. You can feel, um, the excitement and the energy and the new ideas that all these other people that are working in, you know, they're also working in totally different markets. So we're both in Calgary, which is in Canada and has a very specific production market here. And then there's people from LA and last time met a guy from Dubai and uh, New York and like everybody works really differently in these places. And that like melding of just quick conversations about like, how do you do stuff? How do you run your business? How do you make your movies? How do you record your podcasts? You can't help but leave with new ideas and inspiration. Yeah. And it, it uh, it really does help with um, a pretty much just general sense of your entire life in this world of production, because for instance, last year, either last year or two years ago, there was the big 4k change of the resolution of video. So standard HD resolution of 1080p took the leap up into what is now ultra HD or UHD, which is 4k. And it's just a way bigger resolution. And what most people don't assume outside of this industry is that that has to come with its own workflow because it has to come with way more hard drives and way more processing power and all these things. And I remember seeing at the Adobe booth, I think it was last year or the year before, I can't remember, there was a YouTube channel specifically. There was a guy that was, he worked for YouTube doing a channel of theirs where they had all these celebrities and everything, but their workflow has to be all done in one day. So they have to shoot and uh, process, edit, do all the DIT, all the digital work, uh, the asset management, all of that in one day. And it has to be posted less than 24 hours after it was shot and, and produced. So they had this insanely well laid out um, workflow. And that workflow is something that if that's not your challenge, like in your business, if you don't have to have that stress put on you, it's something that your intuition doesn't just build or assume, or you don't put the effort into making because that's not how you work. So it's just right. so you assume, interesting. You assume you have to have a week to get a single project done. Yeah. And then you see somebody who can bang them out in 24 hours and yeah. all of a sudden, yeah, you it can drive you to do a and, lot more. And I, I found a very similar kind of essence coming from uh, a guy named Alex Buono, who is the cinematographer, director of photography for all of the Saturday, Saturday Night Live digital shorts. And he's been with Saturday Night Live for a long time but their, their particular challenge is very similar where they shoot, I think, on, I believe they do their pre-production on Thursday, their production on Friday, and it has to be ready for broadcast on Saturday. So they have not 
<laughs> it's nothing. It's my cameras or my computer's making a burping sounds. Oh, that's funny. Um, Backup is finished. So they have this, that team at Saturday Night Live has not a lot of time to actually do a full, like production, high production value uh, process where they have to output something that's ready to be up to that standard. And that, that is a really specific amount of challenges. And it's, realistically, this is something that you get when, if you're new to video or you're new to filmmaking or you're new to a thing like NAB, you don't know what you don't know. So the first year you go there, a lot of it is just learning what you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like just learning that what you don't know exists. And then the you second could, you year, could possibly be excited about this, even though you didn't know you could. Yeah. And then, and then you kind of leave and it well, takes here, several let's years. Backtrack, of, Cause pe- a lot of people we're not, we don't need to get them excited about NAB cause they won't be there. <laughs> yeah. But like why your journey came from photo to, to video to some extent, right? Like you definitely do less photography now than when you got started and you are more interested in, in, in video or film production now. Yeah. Um, and like wh- how, how did that transition happen for you? Well, the, the main transition happened through what I think is, uh, if I have any set of skills, the, the number one or the one that's in bold is I can reach out to people quite, um, quite generously. Like I, I don't have anything really in between trying to meet anyone. And when I left school, the first person I met and contacted with just via Twitter was a guy named Vincent Laferay. And he is a Pulitzer prize winning photographer who had, you know, if anything, he's most well known for being the guy that made the first video on the 5d mark ii when the dslr revolution happened and at that point he was mostly a photographer right he was doing this transition as well like he went on kind of this same journey yeah other than obviously as a photographer back before dslr video you could do a photo to video transition but it wasn't as practical it wasn't democratized it wasn't as palatable there wasn't if you think of even how easy it is to edit with things like premiere and final cut pro x like well, you would have had to make sacrifices back in the day. You would have had to stop doing these photo shoots and you'd have to go and start assisting and start working on video projects that people already have the equipment so you can learn how to use it before you can go buy it or rent it. Or like there are so many steps between making a movie. Like there's a, there's a lot compared to now you, you, you already have the camera that's going to do this. Yeah. So you can just decide to watch a YouTube tutorial or sign up for lynda.com. And all of a sudden you know how to make a basic movie and you can grow from there. Like personally, the thing that I have tried to uh, instigate in people that aren't shooting video yet, but imagine they have a DSLR that can shoot video. They have a 5d Mark three or D 800 or something like that, that can shoot video, but they're using it as a primary photo camera they most likely, and this is an assumption, but they most likely are uh, subscribed to the creative cloud as well. So that is a th- safe thing to assume that most creative professionals as photographers have is the Photoshop and Lightroom subscription. And if that's the case, that you have a camera that shoots photo that can do video, and you have a subscription to creative cloud that probably has the ability to download Adobe Premiere Pro, but you just haven't yet, then there's really nothing stopping other than the urge to learn how to use these things, stopping you from doing it. And the thing that I, I really try to stress is if you're building a business, you, by learning video, you increase your ability to produce for your clients twofold. So Mm -hmm. you, you double your product. Well, I I have two separate thoughts on that. One is that, um, yes, 
Another is that I think there's this, I think there's this confusion with clients, people that don't have to do the producing themselves that since you're using one camera, you can kind of show up and just do two things at once. So, and that's not, that's uh, not entirely what I meant, no, but, uh, no. but it's a thing to address. Like if you're thinking of getting into this, um, be careful not to like think that you can just show up and that it, it can be the same thing at the same time. Well, it, that's, it's similar to like, I even had a photo shoot that just went by where, um, there's an essence to a shoot when it's ambiguous, where people will say, well, you have the lights already set up. Let's shoot something else as well. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, no, 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 no. We have to stay with the plan here or else everything just, it's a house of cards. It just all falls down. Mm-hmm. So what I meant, if I can clarify it, is just the fact that if you learn video, um, just uh, uh, just imagine the you, you sell T-shirts and you learn how to make pants. You have, now have twice as many things you can sell. It doesn't mean that everyone that buys a T-shirt thinks, well, I'm, give me pants as well. It means that you have two different products that you can sell to maybe potentially two different clients. Like, yeah, for absolutely. Instance, well, I'm, I'm just like giving it as a cautionary tale oh, yeah, to anybody definitely. getting into it. Don't let your clients talk you into doing both at the exact same moment. Yeah, and I think... That, as funny as it is, there's a stress that comes with the business side of doing like something like video and photo both that Tyler and I both know because we, a few years ago, really started getting into video filmmaking and, you know, the whole world of both. So there's other things that come as stresses like the assumption from your clients, like you can do both. But in reality, like what I'd like to do is talk less potentially about the business and those implications of video, because that's kind of a couple steps into learning it anyway. Right. Yeah, think, you should probably be doing it for yourself before you ask yeah. anybody for money. Yeah. If anything, you have to spend a certain amount of time doing personal projects that learn how to edit, learn how to shoot. You have to learn kind of the fundamental differences and that's, you know, I don't want to say that it's a certain amount of time like guaranteed on any particular person, but it's at least a couple of months that mm-hmm. you need to do that. So you kind of don't put the cart before the horse and think I'm just going to instantly start selling it. Like it's such a good idea. I'm going to put it on my, in my inventory and start selling video. The conversation we're having here is more or less that video exists for this, uh, for this thing to use as a creative tool right now. You have to get good enough that you can actually call it a product that you can sell. And then when you get to that bridge, you cross it. A thing I commonly see online that I think is, uh, a silly argument is, is about, um, whether you need to pursue this or not as a photographer, like, do you need to learn how to do video to make a sustainable business? Like as they're crossing over and clients are asking for it more, like, um, is it necessary? And like, absolutely not. You can be a photographer or you can make videos. This is not required. This is the future. Isn't going to be, everybody is doing both things at once or that they are the same thing. It's not going to be the same product. They will necessarily be different. Like the storytelling of a still moment will always be different from a series of moments, uh, with audio and with, see, I hesitant. I'm, I'm very hesitant to use absolutes when you say something like this absolutely isn't the case Mm -hmm. or this always will be this way. Cause I do want to at least give a counter argument to say it is rapidly changed, uh, in the last few years and it's changed at a lot of levels. Specifically, I have a couple of friends that um, one group of friends is a production company in New York City that does primarily video work, so high-end commercial video work. And then one of my friends is a high-end commercial photographer in uh, in New York, and both of them team a lot of National Geographic jobs together, where in the same day, they will set up both photo and video. It's not like they say, this photographer 
is also going to direct or do the video because they understand it's very complex. Each is specific to its like side, but they do know that having all the talent in one place. So if they're going to be shooting a commercial spot with all of the people from a show, it actually does make sense to have a seamless and a photo shoot that is separate and different, but even in the same space. Yeah. So that's how it is right now. And I'm not sure that it's not going to get even more, well, I, th- I think combining the productions makes sense, like uh, converging on lights. Like, I think more people will be using continuous lighting. That's an easy example, right? Yeah. Um, but the just the actual, it, you'll I still think you will need more than one person, or you'll need twice as much time. It could be the same person, or it could be two people, dude. But you just can't. one AI, like. Just wait long enough. It's just going to be all artificial intelligence doing everything. Like, come on. Oh, man. I've seen that in some of the TV stations in Calgary that they're like, as they cross over from camera operators to fully automated, uh, there's just a guy in the booth and you look at the stage and it's empty. There's nobody there. It's just cameras moving on their own. Um, yeah, I sometimes the think robots that, are coming. I sometimes think that our job safety is in the fact that we just prefer a human company and human presence. Right. Like that's where the job security will come. And that's like a, a petty kind of thing that we need that to be comfortable. But, but you're really social. What are, what are, what do the less social people feel about that? Yeah. Like, I don't know how it is with going through. I'm sure there's through, some people that want less people around them when they work. But imagine, okay, like I'll give you just a parallel of something that sh- shouldn't matter that does. So one thing is the size of a camera. So if you do something, or even the size of a production, let's imagine your client is Microsoft, and Microsoft is paying you X amount of dollars, and imagine that it's astronomical in a sense where it's like in the 50 to 100 to 150, some crazy commercial fee, like, and they're doing a commercial for this Surface or something. I don't know. Imagine that's the case, and you say, hey, we actually don't need this whole song and dance. We can do it in this really do-it-yourself fashion, And I can shoot it on my iPhone 6 and it's going to get a really good output. And there's lenses that go on the iPhone 6 now. And also, instead of having a big stage with huge lights, we'll just use these little lights and we'll trickery it. Sometimes, and I know this fundamentally matters, the people that sign those checks and that make those deals, they have to believe sometimes that the production is as big Mm -hmm. as the output is. So that shouldn't matter, but it still does sometimes. And I think that's I petty. Definitely. Just, I don't, need, and it does I don't even know if it's petty. I don't think it's petty. I mean, I think that, you know, I want a certain amount of treatment if I'm spending a certain amount of money on anything myself. If I like, I, um, I like the Apple store experience. You know, I, yeah. if I'm going to buy, if I'm going to go sp- if I'm going to buy, um, let's say I want to buy a fancy traditional, uh, mechanical watch for, $3,000. I want some guy with white gloves to get me a, a nice water and, you know, take his time making me feel excellent about my purchase. And if I'm going to write a check for ten, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for, uh, you know, a commercial shoot to happen, I want to feel like I'm, uh, getting my, my money's you worth. Know, I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable. Uh, not unreasonable and maybe petty wrong word, but I mm-hmm. do think that these are strange realities right, that yeah, we have yeah. to deal with. And I think if I can make one note that I really thought uh, it was a big mental leap that I made in in business and specifically product. It's from a friend of mine named Kelsey Goodwin. She's a photographer in uh, Victoria. She's a commercial photographer and wedding photographer. Her and I taught a workshop uh, last year. And in that workshop, what's funny is I was a co-teacher. And as she was doing her present- uh, presentation, I was learning as much as the students were learning some of it. But she made a really clear designation to make sure you knew the difference between 
whether or not your product is a commodity or a luxury. Because if it's a commodity, it's just something people need and that you are interchangeable. And if it's a luxury, it's a feeling that they're getting from what they're getting from you. And it doesn't, it's not something they need. So even if you think of the commodity wedding photographer, some people will think of it as being just, I just need someone there. I don't really care, whatever. And then clearly, if you make the designation to be, I will be a luxury photographer, it's that you're going to add to the experience of the wedding. You're going to be positive. You're going to be a good essence there. You're going to make art with them. You're going to do these things that they can show their friends and they can feel like rock stars. It's all from this feeling of luxury. I think that's a really helpful distinction. I mean, I've been in both situations, like even, you know, a few weeks apart, I'm doing two different jobs. The best example is uh, just events. If you're shooting a party or like a a social thing, um, you are a commodity. Nobody really cares what you're doing. You're just turning on a flash and walking around, getting everybody to smile and be next to each other. Um, And then compared to doing, say, a commercial shoot, it starts becoming more of a luxury thing generally. I mean, hopefully, uh, but yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I think it's, and I really do think that in the area of luxury, why I would say that this isn't petty and why I would still think this is a reality that offers job security is the way that humans feel the way that we feel the way our clients feel that's really at the end of the day, a lot of what we're doing with the whole thing. It's like, oh, we're trying sure. to make our customers feel this way. Yeah, and audience they want to hire people that are nice to be around. <laughs> like yeah. that's half of what building any staff is, is like, who do you want to spend your time with? But imagine even the fact that I remember when I first got into photography, this doesn't matter as much anymore, but when I first got in, I bought a 5D Mark II when I went to school, uh, first got in when I started doing it professionally. Um, I, bought a 5D Mark II and immediately bought the battery grip that went on the bottom of it because it made the the uh, prosumer or consumer camera look like a professional camera because it mm-hmm. was a full body, like right. unibody look. at look. the size of that camera. Yeah, but it specifically looked and gave the essence like a more professional camera that I felt, it, maybe it was just for me, to be honest, to make me feel like more of a pro. But some people did get that feeling like there was a professional taking their photos. It's It's less of that, um, still, but when, as you go up into filmmaking and, and uh, specifically high end work, well, there is like a big song and dance that comes with it. Can I confess that that is the only reason I still have a map box? Um, which I think is, uh, you know, if that's no. the only reason you still have a map box, well, then we have to educate the, It's not you. the only reason I bought it, but it is not practical to bring on most of my shoots. And when I for have photo? brought, no, for video, oh. when I have set up the map box, I'm like, okay, today's the day I'm going to use it because it's going to look good to the client. And, you know, this can be practical. Like, I've got a few ND filters. I can throw them in and out. And you know what? Like, switching lenses, because I don't have cinema lenses, has beca- it's everything is worse, and it gets in my way, and I'm, like, trying to push it out of the way. I'm like, screw yeah. it. And I take it off, and I throw it on the ground, and I shoot Whoa. without the map box. Um, but if you don't know I what a map that. box is, it's oh, the yeah. big thing on the end of, uh, like, cinema cameras that um, is, like, at the tip of the lens basically. And it makes the lens look three times bigger to people who aren't familiar with what it is. Okay. So that's what Um, it looks like. But to tell you what it does is you can have, uh, on the end of like a photo camera, you can have a circular filter that will just thread on your, the end of your lens, UV filter. Um, uh, you can have polarizers, you can have ND filters, all these filters, right. That do different things and they will, will screw on. And what a map box is for is for in filmmaking, you use filters for really practical reasons more often I find than in photography. Cause 
There's a couple of limits in uh, in video, but the main thing is when you put a matte box in, it actually becomes more convenient to take the filters in and out than unscrew and screw on because you can quickly remove them and quickly put them back in. Oh, can you even explain what ND filters are? That's like a super key crossover component. So, okay, to really understand. So if, if we make a, a designation right now in the conversation, this is one of the fundamental differences of video, shooting video and film as compared to photo. Video has a relationship with your shutter speed that is determined, essentially it's determined by the way that motion pictures were created. So back when they were very analog, way back in the day, the shutter system for cameras would rotate in this certain way at this certain speed, and it made the exposure on each one of the, the frames, it made it a specific duration. And it was coined the 180-degree shutter rule. As simple, in the simplest possible way to understand that, it means that if you're shooting a certain amount of frames per second, so the amount of photos or frames per second to make it a video, whatever certain amount of frames per second you're shooting, you have a corresponding shutter speed. That if you follow that rule, the 180-degree shutter rule, your frames per second determines your shutter speed. Because that's locked, and it isn't locked in photography, you, you have the full freedom of doing whatever you want with your settings with photography. But for a certain look, which is the cinematic or you know proper filmmaking look, because that's locked, you have a certain duration of shutter, which means that if you have a ton of light, the way you stop that light from coming in is you block it out with neutral density filters. So if you want to shoot at f2.8, and you want to you know, have this shallow depth of field and you want to have the cinematic look, you have a fundamental amount of light coming in the lens and you have to stop some of that light or enough of it to make the exposure right. So the, the control that you would normally have with your settings in photography is now a control, but that control is in neutral density filters that you block light from coming in the front of your lens. It basically looks like a black piece of glass. Yeah, it's like, imagine welder's glass. Like if you're welding mm-hmm. and that light is really bright, you are sunglasses. It's like the sun, <laughs> right. oh, yeah. the sun, the sun's really bright. You want to yeah. you know, have less light go in your eyes. It's, That's ex- and it's a really common way to spot people that um, haven't maybe spent as much time learning about the differences between photography is that they'll leave the shutter speed on a photography setting, which gives this, um, well, I most often hear it referred to as like the saving private Ryan look of the like really fast jerky motion. It's very hard to really describe without seeing it. Um, but it's, uh, it just has this scent the motion doesn't have the same smoothness that it usually does. It's used in a lot of action movies during intense scenes. And if you just leave it on the whole time, it just has this, you can feel it like any viewer may not they may not realize what they're seeing, but you can sense that everything is moving in a very different way. So the, the, the benefit, like the thing that makes it more cinematic is the motion blur, right? It's like the amount that people are blurring as they move through the yeah. scene, right? In, no, it's the amount of motion blur in between each frame. So if you have right. 24 frames per second, you essentially have one frame and then a gap of time in between that frame and the next frame if it's photos happening, it's photo one and then photo two, then photo three and 24 photos happens per second. That's what's called frames per second. And then in between those photos, there's either no motion blur or there is motion blur. So if the first photo has a little bit of motion blur of someone moving forward, and then the next photo has a little bit of motion blur of them continuing that motion, 
there's a proper amount of motion flowing in between each of those frames. To give the Saving Private Ryan look, you essentially create such short shutter duration, so your shutter speed's very fast. So the first photo happens, and then there's stuff that happens in the time in between those photos. So in between the frames, things move, and then the next photo happens, and things are in a different place. You can so see it makes it, it look stuttery. A good place to see it is if you try to do a stop motion and, and, and have that. So if you are shooting a time lapse and you leave your shutter speed really fast, it'll, you can really see that like jerky look. And if you smooth it out by increasing your duration, like a, let's say of cars driving at night, that'd be a great example. Once there's some blur to the movement, it looks completely different. See, that is, that's funny you bring that up Water. because that is the number one thing that I think time-lapse photographers and videographers do wrong because yeah. they don't actually calculate the 180 degree shutter rule, which is like, imagine, okay, with time-lapses, sometimes if you want to do something like a star, like star trails or something, you have to leave the shutter open for like 30 seconds, right? So if you have 30 seconds and then a gap of time in between that and the next frame, you have to calculate all of those things to be very similar to like, imagine I'm filming uh, real time. So I start, I press record on video and I'm filming things happening at real speed. The relationship of the shutter speed to the frames per second should be the same ratio or relationship at any duration of shutter speed or any duration of frames per second of, you know, time-lapse or high speed. So that's one of the reasons why, if you can imagine that ND filters um, if you were to want to shoot on F2.8 on real time, you'd need to put ND filters to block light from coming in. But it, imagine you shoot a thousand frames per second. It's the exact opposite. So a thousand photos per second means that the longest possible duration for each frame is at one one thousandth of a second. And that's the, that is the short longest, that's the, the longest duration that right. each frame could be. Mm-hmm. Therefore that you, you usually need a lot more light. Because you need if if you're not letting that much light in, because each frame is such a short duration, you need to blast it with light. Yeah, you told me about a project you worked on once that was shot for outdoors, but outdoors wasn't bright enough. Is that is that what the story was? There's two extreme things. One was I shot I, I shot a behind the scenes video. It was one of the first projects I did right out of school, and it was shot at night, but they wanted it to look moonlit, and they used five hundred thousand watts of light. <laughs> okay. Which this is, is brighter too, than the sun. This is too technical to go into. Let's just say this. I've been involved in some pretty technical shoots, whether they be high speed uh, motion control, whether they be um, visual effects, all these different things. This was the most complex and technical shoot that I've still been on. It was re- remarkably complex. But there was another thing that was essentially had to do with a couple fundamental limits of just one is lens physics and the other is high speed. One in the lens physics department is, well, they were shooting a commercial of a, it was a yogurt commercial and they were dropping a strawberry into uh, what, what, what was actually glue. It was Elmer's glue dyed for milk. Yeah. It was because it had to have a certain, yeah, it had to have a certain consistency to Mm -hmm. it as the, as the uh, strawberry hit it, but they shot it in macro. So they had to have the lens really close to the strawberry. So really, really close. And one of the rules that comes with macro is if you want to keep your depth of field, like it's, you know, at all wide, essentially how, how depth of field works is the closer you get to a subject, the shallower the depth of field gets. So if you get really close to a strawberry, 
you need to close down your aperture a lot to make the depth of field even visible, like to be able to see anything. Right. Like, I mean, F8 is a, it gives you a ton in a regular photo and yeah. a macro, it starts to get, that's very so narrow. Imagine this where just to preface this, there's a fundamental difference in lighting with video as opposed to f- photo, which is with photos, you can use strobes, which just bursts light. It just turns on really bright for a second and it's as bright as it needs to be for your exposure. With video or with filmmaking, you need ambient or constant, not ambient, but constant lights that are always on and they need to be however bright they are. And typically they're called hot lights because they get really hot. But this being a macro shoot, it they had to have it on F96. <laughs> I didn't realize that was an F. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure a lot of people were saying F that day. But they had to have it on F96 and they shot it at 500 frames per second. So if you can imagine, the longest possible duration is one five hundredth of a second. F96, they had to put a lot of light on that strawberry to make it even like wow. a dark even exposure. Visible. Yeah, yeah it, that is a whole lot of light. Crazy. So those are that. What's funny? What I find about photography when you go into more technical parts of photography, it can get really creative with how you use the variables that you have. Like lighting, for instance, it's very similar to. Uh, a camera, how a camera sees, um, you know, has its shutter, its aperture and its ISO each are governed by the unit of a stop. So either double or half as much light. And then you can add as many variables as you want, which is every light you add, you have the control of how bright that light is. So you have the relationship, the ratios of the lights, all these different things. But with filmmaking, it just goes into these really weird technical realms to get different effects you hit these challenges like F96, one five hundredth of a second. You're like, how do you, how do you even get that much light? <laughs> and then you need a, a guy that is an electrician as your, as your grip and your DP. And, but this is all why I really enjoy video because it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to it. it like, okay. Wait, you, wait, wait. It's not really hard by nature, by its nature. Mm-hmm. It can be because I don't want to have it prefaced or, or titled as hard because there's very easy ways to do um, certain things. Like for instance, it is not that hard to film on your iPhone and, and literally edit in iMovie on your iPhone and you can make really good stuff. There was a film in Sundance this year that was shot in the iPhone six. Oh, cool. Like, have you seen that Bentley commercial? Oh the, my God. That was it's so, great. So beautiful. Yeah. Okay. But so, okay. I'll rephrase that. Cause I definitely don't mean hard. I mean that it's so, there's so much potential. Like you, you can, it's more impossible to know everything about video production than it is about photography. Like it, I would say that. And let's just say without going too into too many details, the one thing that designates that is that one person can be a photographer and, just watch the credits after a movie. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible exactly. to do with one person. Impossible. Mm-hmm. That's how complex it gets. And uh, that relationship alone is how I have understood why you can't keep a single-minded, lonely, kind of uh, selfish perspective as you make a transition into video is because it's a team sport, it's collaboration, and it has to be. Well, and personally, I, like I... This is maybe I'm just a crazy person, but I've always kind of been addicted to tutorials or reading Wikipedia articles or just like, I just want to know how gear works. I hear that Adobe announced some new software and I want to learn how to use it just because it sounds cool, even though I have nothing I need to mix it. Like, I want to start a podcast because I think microphones are cool and I want to, you know, like, 
I just like using stuff and learning how it works. And there's so much of that. You can dive so deep with, with video. Well, the thing that I'm actually quite liking lately, as you'd even realize of your, what's enabled you to become a podcaster is it's become easier. Like there mm -hmm. is things that have made it easier. And for instance, I have since over the last two weeks, I've become enamored by vectors and learning illustrator even more. And for two different reasons, one is that they uh, vectors illus or uh, they animate amazingly in after effects. And I don't know why I didn't assume that, but it's so beautiful what they look like. And the other thing is uh, Adobe came out with an app called Adobe shape that you just take photos of stuff and it makes a vector out of that image. And it's a beautiful vector and it goes right onto your uh, creative cloud, um, like kind of cloud account it stores that vector on your cloud account. And when you open up Illustrator, there's a little icon that's your cloud icon and you just drag and drop it into a document. So you can go out in the same way that when I was starting composites, I would go out and shoot textures. I would just texture, texture, texture. And I would get back and I would think of what can I build with these textures? I'm going around and shooting vectors and I'm just like just collecting a library. Yeah. I, I went to the library the other day <laughs> and I, I opened a bunch of books and shot like atlases and stuff and shot oh, rivers and cool. all sorts of different stuff because I was like, wow, it just made it so easy. Right. I have a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So what do you think of, um, I think that there's a lot of photographers that kind of, um, hate gear. They fight with their computer. The camera isn't exciting to them. It's all about the image and working with people. And um, it's it's much more about uh, the art of it and the final product. And the, the, the technology is just a burden that they, they have to learn Photoshop to get through it. And they have to learn Lightroom and Backup. But it's not fun. Like, I think that's, that's pretty common. It's becoming more common as uh, there's more iPhone photographers. I think that's, it's harder to do. Like, I think I see that less often with video people. Like there's not many people that make a lot of videos that are afraid of the gear. Is, do you think that's true? Like, can you be a great video producer and not get like intimate with the things you're using to build it? Mm, see, or do, do you I see wonder. the distinction I'm thinking about? Yeah. I don't know if that's just inside my no, head. No, I, I do because, um, okay, let's put it in this way. When I first started going onto big sets, I quickly realized um, I had I had become a person that I thought was pompously filled with knowledge. I had left photography school, also addicted to tutorials, and I was compositing in Photoshop. And I have I have since learned that I know nothing. But um, <laughs> what I realized, being that person that was so confident of their technical ability is that I would go on these video sets and people that were doing the lowest roles on those video sets knew more than I did. Oh my God. I totally know that feeling. They, <laughs> I they, was on a set like that recently. Everybody yeah. knew more because when they go through film school, they, they, um, I think they have to bond with the tech side of it, at least knowing that production doesn't happen by itself. Mm -hmm. It's like, and in, and in, uh, Film school, you go through, like I didn't go to film school, but you go through all the different roles. So directors can't just go there and only direct. You have to grip, you have to DP, you have to gaff, you be a gaffer. You have to do um, a couple different things just so you know how it all works. But you get this general knowledge of a bunch of different stuff. And I found that even the lowest level knew a lot. Now that's not necessarily true still because what I find to be a huge designation in between myself now and, and general production um, crew 
is they might know a decent amount about production, but I know way more about post-production, pre-production, production, production, writing, things that are way beyond. More of the whole package. Yeah, like the work of it. Mm -hmm. Specifically, like just knowing, um, you know, just knowing Lightroom really well. Like if you come from a photo background and you know a photo workflow, there's a lot of people in filmmaking that don't actually know how to do photo like Photoshop Lightroom. They, they have no idea. Mm -hmm. They might not know. Um, they might know Adobe premiere pro to some extent, but they've spent a majority of their time in one place. So I feel like, um, less of a Jack of all trades and more of a polymath where I feel like I'm getting good enough to say I'm, I'm good at several things. And that I think taking my goals into account I need to be that person to actually achieve the, like, uh, to deserve the role of director and right. be, yeah. be the I apex totally of saying. a team. And, well, I and I, I hear people that have those specific roles, like I was talking to an editor recently and then a grip separately recently, a grip being like somebody that does the physical lighting stuff on a production. Um, it, they both were saying the editor was like, Oh God, like I hate shooting. Like I never want to, I never want to shoot anything myself at all. Like I edit for my job and that's what I do. And the grip was saying like, God, I hate editing. Like I don't want to spend any time on the computer. That's why I don't like, he doesn't work that much on his own projects. It's cause he'd rather, you know, be, uh, out there like doing the physical stuff that, uh, is on somebody else's project. And so like, there's all these different roles and skill sets that, um, it's, it's necessary to have those people that really feel passionate about one side or the other of what's being made here. You know, I, I think that, uh, generally I, I don't know if I ever come to too deep of a conclusion or a bias about the way things are, I'm wrong. Like that's just a really safe assumption. And, uh, one of the things I remember kind of blowing me away, um, based on the fact that I resonate with, I usually resonate just naturally with people that think a lot like me. Uh, like I won't even realize why I like them. And then I'll realize that they, they think similar things. I'm like, Oh, okay. I can see why I like you. And then there's some people that are so different than me that I learn how different they are from me. And I realize, man, there is no one way of doing this. This is ridiculous for me to think this way. So the, the example is that, um, like one of my favorite directors, both of us quite like, uh, David Fincher Mm -hmm. And not for just the reason that his movies are amazing, but honestly, he is a master technician. He started in visual effects. Right. He started in ILM. He he started being a VFX supervisor at ILM. He, um, he started right in the root of production way down at the bottom, as well as just deep visual effects. And then he just mastered so many different arts of production as well as editing, as well as technology, as well as anything. And that's one of the reasons why his, films often embrace the leaps in technology. Like he has fully embraced a fully digital workflow. Right. Yeah. He's like one of the best people to look at for like the most modern um, digital techniques. I mean, Gone Girl being in premiere and, you know, shooting early on the red and all sorts of things that he's kind of leading on. Um, Yeah. And well, one of the things that if I can polarize this or, mm -hmm. or show it as a, like what I, what I was saying before, how different other people can can be. Um, I was watching a panel with directors a couple of years ago, and it was after I had obsessed about David Fincher and specifically James Cameron and a few of those massive technological leaps. And they often say that both of those directors can do any role on set as good as anyone else doing it on set. Like they could be the cinematographer, they could be the whatever. 
And uh, I was listening to this director's panel with Darren Aronofsky. And Darren Aronofsky directed uh, Pi, Black Swan, Requiem for a Dream, uh, Noah that just came out. I don't know, a couple of really great movies, right? right? But his DP is Matthew Libetique. And Matthew Libetique did uh, Iron Man. Um, he's, he's done all of Aronofsky's films. But when Aronofsky was talking um, about story, someone asked him a technical question. And he, it was tech, it was technical, something to do with lighting. And he, he had no answer for it. And he just said, I don't know what Matt puts it on. He puts it on like <laughs> 5,700 something. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know. And he quickly polished off that. Like, like, don't ask me those questions. That is totally not my jam. Right. And if you would ask David Fincher about lighting, he would, I'm sure give you this crash course. You'd have a lot yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things. But when I clearly designated that your attention and your skills are where you put your attention and where you grow your skills. And if you want to be a person that has technical shoots and does technical, amazing stuff, that's what you'll do. And you can also make amazing stories. You can also care as much like Wes Anderson to every department of every piece of the art you make. Then there's people that really care a lot about what goes in front of the camera and they just make sure their exposure is exposed right. And I have a really random question. Do you know Fincher, d- does he operate the camera at all? Like, I know I see Wes Anderson do that and uh, James Cameron. They both, like, you see them shooting a lot themselves, yeah, which I find interesting. Um, Steven Soderbergh does it a lot. He, yeah. he shoots his own movies quite often as well. Um, no, David Fincher's DP is Jeff Cronenworth. Yeah. And Cronenworth. And he so has... I always forget. He's DP'd... Um, all I want to say he's DP'd all of his movies, but uh, how Fincher works, he works fundamentally off of the relationship of how the image fits in the frame. So he often directs actively while being monitored on his left and seen on, on the right. And he will have such an intimate relationship with how everything is interrelating with performances, blocking, blocking being where people are in this, in the frame so imagine you get a person to stand on the right side of the frame, a person to stand on the left side of the frame, and their blocking might be they both walk in opposite directions. So like that's their cue, and that's how they're blocked. So he cares so much about all those things, but if he were to focus on cinematography, uh, I'm sure he would be the first one to say that he couldn't care as much about the other things that are as important or more important. So um, yes and and no you do see cameron running the camera quite often and like soderbergh for instance he's a perfect example he often is credited as the cinematographer of his own films because hmm. he he loves to shoot that's that can be a thing and i suppose if you're that type of person that can take that on i know i can't i know yeah. that's too much <laughs> i would love uh, doing small tiny budget stuff that i do now that's the thing i would love to hand off soonest yeah. is to have a, a camera operator so really trust. Keep in mind, there's a couple different instances where you'd see a person like James Cameron or, or, you know, a director operating the camera. And it might be because someone's filming them operating a camera, not the camera. Mm. And considering in high end uh, filmmaking and high end video shoots, if you have something that is going to happen, an explosion and an explosion is going to be a million dollars to happen. You are going to have a couple of different cameras filming it for sure. Because it's not going to be multiple takes. Right, right, right. So you get multi cameras Mm -hmm. and you also get second unit and first unit. You also get steady cam operators and drone operators. So imagine Jeff Cronenworth is the DP. He'll operate most of the stuff that's on the ground. But as soon as a steady cam op comes in and he's going to be floating that camera around the scene, however, it's going to be floating around, 
Cronenworth probably not going to be the guy that does yeah, that. It's a specific skill. It's going to be a union operated steady cam. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Well here, before we run out of time, I still want to bring this back a little bit and give maybe a, a bit of an overview of like, what are the things that I, what are the things that we get together and talk about that um, I get so excited about that you can take out of cinema production and apply to photography that like, I feel like is missing. I mean, things we were talking about the other day is like lighting a full room, like the approach that the approach that any video film person will take to lighting is usually very different from a stills person. Um, just instinctually, like you think about it differently. Um, looking at the, the, the whole room, because often people are going to move through it. You're not able to just like, okay, stand, stand here and I'm going to move around you until it looks nice. You have to spend a lot more time thinking about the blocking and where they're going to be. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know where I want to go with that, but I definitely want to like, I can can interject. I already know exactly what you're tapping on or like what you're getting to. The main thing I can say, like when you go to lighting an entire room, it's similar. Okay. If I can use this kind of lighting context where lighting in, in cinema, like cinematography, a little bit more complex, but it gives this freedom and this beautiful kind of relationship with the whole space that they need because they need to, in, they need to move around that space. They need to walk down hallways and move, get up and down from chairs and run. They need to do all sorts of stuff, not just in a single frame mm-hmm. where photo it's in a single frame. So you often tweak such subtle things for photography that you can, because all you need is that one look that one time for that one second. And similar with like, if you imagine Photoshop, you're compositing, you're doing all these tricks to try and make it look right for that one frame. The fundamental difference between Photoshopping for a photo and visual effects is that visual effects has to create something that can move with that. So it's like, if it's an element that has to coexist with people, they have to figure out how to make it like, it's not just how the shadow looks in one place, one frame. Right. The shadow has to move as the camera moves and so on and so forth. So it just goes- Yeah, the camera moving as well as people moving across it. And like there are so many layers that um, just having having time as a variable introduce. Um, but I mean, there's one thing you said about the lighting being more complex. And even uh, from what just the, the final product looks like is that I think often it looks it looks less complex. Like usually you can see the lighting in a lot of people's stills. Um, maybe I, th- I think there's becoming a trend to, to have more natural lighting and still photography, but uh, that in video, you, there's always been that goal of like, hide it, like make it feel like the real world to some extent. Yeah, um, definitely. Whereas you, like, you're not going to have that blasting straight on flash, which people will still very often do in photography. Like it's quite common to just have, uh, you know, one obvious big key light and you can see exactly where it's coming from and it's fully illuminating the subject and you can see the fall off happening in the background. So um, and th- that's just not going to happen. In video. I think, I think the designation that I'd like to make with even how we've referred to this over and over again to, as video, in my mind, there's a major de- difference between video and film and mm-hmm. cinema and filmmaking. And if you can imagine the exact same reality is in photography, there's a difference between photo and fine art. Mm-hmm. Like if you go out and you shoot a blasted ring flash at someone's face, it might pass as fine art, but you're most likely going to capture humanity in a very real way, an honest and genuine way. That's going to most likely be fine art. It's going to be so emotionally relevant because it, it, it's believability makes the person looking at it 
it, it makes you connect by, by the subject being your proxy. It's like you can imagine them being you because their world looks like your world. It doesn't look like this flash lit major produced world. It looks real. And if you can imagine, this is something I've learned from one of my good friends, Khalid, who's a really good cinematographer. It's really often, good. <laughs> he, he often refers to, actually it's the only way he ever refers to this is he says that lights look sourcey. So it, it, mm. if a light looks sourcey, it looks like it's <laughs> like coming from a source. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great word. If it's if it's coming from a source and that source isn't known by the frame, if you're looking in the frame and that source isn't known by the frame, it's unmotivated. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if it's an sourcey, it's unmotivated. And if you want it to be sourcey, you have to put a practical source in the shot right. to make it look like that right. is causing that. So you want to stick a window over here or so, a lamp or a... If you can imagine the sourcey would be non, it would be, it would be non-causal. It would be that something's causing that, but it doesn't look right. So you want to make this, you want to make sense of a frame to say that's causing that that's causing that these all things live with a relationship inside of a frame. I think to like a game to play next time you watch movies, look for how many scenes that the person's face is virtually unlit. Like that you would consider like it in a still to be completely underexposed. Like it would look non-lit. It's like, this is not a complete photo yet. You need to add the light. But in every movie, in, even in really commercial movies, you'll find a few scenes where the, the main subject's face is dark, completely dark. Dude, I had this crazy, I had a conversation with Khalid the other day because I shot this big thing and I said, oh, I'm so bummed out on a couple of the frames. And he said, why? I said, well, because they don't have a catch light in the eyes. He said, catch lights are overrated, man. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, just look at films, man. <laughs> like you think right. every single shot of every person, they have catch lights? No, they do sometimes when there's a motivated source and a reason for them. But mm-hmm. you know, no. And I was like, same, like, look at how like some people's faces are completely dark. And you're like, what? But uh, I will say that there's one other fundamental difference um, that I wish to bring into my own art in almost every way that it can't not be there in filmmaking, which is the uh, act of pre-production. So it's how well you plan your intentions. And if you just think that with high-end video, similar to very high-end photo, if you think of like an art director with you know, boards of composition and what exactly they know exactly what they want. One of the reasons is because they most, most likely have a high paid, high profile model. They most likely have a crew that's all being paid and they most likely don't want to waste any time while yeah, doing it. Yeah, yeah. And if you think of production and filmmaking, it's one of the reasons that has to be planned out is because it has to be executed. So like it's union usually. So it's like people won't waste time. So if you can just think of planning your shoots as much, or if you can look at how films are planned and you can take that into a photo workflow or your workflow at all, it makes your art just go through the roof. We had an awesome conversation unrecorded a little while ago about that. Like you were going through a bit of pre-production documents or examples of how you do things or have seen things done. And like, there is so much there and I want to know everything, Yeah, (laughs) but, uh, but maybe not, maybe not today. Today, uh, let's, let's round this off by talking about something you're into. What are you into? That's outside of today's conversation, do you have anything or should I go first? Um, if you have something ready to go, go. Sure. Yeah. I have something. Um, uh, so I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I, half of my recommendations will always either be an audiobook or a podcast. Um, but this week I'm on becoming Steve jobs and I am a Apple nerd. So I can't help but read 
everything Steve Jobsy that comes out, and uh, it was good. It, it's it's an interesting thing to compare to the uh, Walter Isaacson official biography. Did you read? I did that one. Did you like it? I, I, I like the Walter Isaacson one. Mm-hmm. I have the audible version that I have yet to listen to of the new one. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a really good counterpoint. I'm glad both exist. I found the, the Isaacson one not... It's not what should have been the definitive biography. I don't feel like he had a grasp of the technology. There's some really weird mistakes. On Hypercritical, it's pointed out that he's quoting... Bill Gates is saying that like they couldn't use certain disk drives because the latency was too low, which doesn't make technical sense. So it means that st- Bill Gates didn't say this. So the quote is incorrect. And all of a sudden I'm like, this guy doesn't know what, <laughs> what technology is or how it works. And that's not who should be writing a definitive technology biography for, you know, one of the most important. People. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's just important to be, uh, critical about most thoughts that come in your brain. And if you are only reading one official biography on one majorly influential person, your assumption should just be that a rebuttal is necessary regardless mm-hmm. to see a bigger part of the picture. And if it's not, you're going to at least form the bias. You can't help but form the bias that was offered to you. And I think it's interesting in this one, it's actually more positive towards Steve Jobs, even though Isaacson had all the interviews, he had all the access and was the one talking directly to Steve. But this one, Becoming Steve Jobs, is by Brent Schlender and Rick Tetzielli. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know how to pronounce your names, but uh, he's he was a journalist for Fortune magazine, so it's written from basically a business perspective. So really different angle. It's much more, I think, sympathetic to Jobs's character. And I don't know. I just get so into these things and cool, can't cool. get enough of it. So I I don't know how I forgot to think of this as my one cool thing or my cool thing right now, but uh, I currently have an Oculus Rift uh, oh, developer kit course, too. Yes, and the Oculus Rift is uh, the biggest leap in virtual reality. It it's the instigator to the big leap of virtual reality. So the technology inside of it is being used in others like the Samsung gear. And uh, there's a new one coming out from valve that's made by HTC. Regardless, it's virtual reality. So I have this right now and it is um, offering a completely new perspective to a lot of different things. And I will just leap past what it's kind of neat things are and think of where I can see it going. Cause I'm excited to honestly embrace virtual reality filmmaking. I'm going to do it in some reality. Ooh. So the major reason why is because I think it's going to flex a new muscle of our mind that we will learn how to be empathetic in a new way. And okay, imagine, imagine this. When people say that they're self-conscious, it usually just means that they are conscious of another conscious being being conscious of them. So it's not that you're conscious of yourself. It's that you know someone else is thinking of you. Right. So that's usually what self-consciousness means. And if you think of looking or gazing into the eyes of someone or you're looking at someone while as they walk by and then they look at you, something changes in your brain and it makes you nervous and you look away. Something is fundamentally, fundamentally different when we watch cinema we can look right at the faces of the actors and we know they're not thinking right. of us, right? Super passive. So we can exist in a world of empathy and learning in a state that is immersive in some other experience. And I think that exact same thing, but a totally different version of it is going to be in virtual reality where we'll have these immersive photojournalistic or uh, journalistic experiences where we will exist in the context of another world where they won't know we're there. So we'll be able to be aware of 
so aware of that reality, but this not have the cool. consequences of that reality. So we'll ha- we'll be able to critically look at it and feel from it. And I honestly think it's going to be a fundamentally different part of our brain and our perception of the world and other worlds. Right. Because like who you're making eye contact with during a conversation, or if you, you know, decide to stare at somebody as they do something embarrassing or you look away. I mean, yeah, that's really interesting. It, it changes. Uh, Actually, there's a really cool thing. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of stealing this perspective from a vice article that I just read by Chris Milk and Spike Jones. And both of them have started a company. It is a iOS app and an Android app called VRSE. And what it is, is they've done a bunch of different virtual reality experiences. Uh, They've done things with vice. So they're going to release a thing in Liberia. It's going, they've done concerts. They've done all these different things and they I think see this vision, the purest of almost anybody. They clearly see that there's this world of storytelling that's going to be immersive in a whole new way. And on top of that, honestly, it's just freaking neat. It's just really neat. Well, I'm downloading this right now. So that's my cool thing. And I'm, I'm hoping that is, if you think <laughs> this is kind of, I'm, I'm trying not to be overwhelmed by this because I'm already overwhelmed by filmmaking in general. Like we were talking about, it's this infinite amount of stuff you can learn. And then we then add things like virtual reality, 360 degree video, like recording. You add binaural sound, 360 degree sound. You add all these layers of complexity that just take it to the new level. It's some other place. Yeah. Learning the tech of 360 shooting. That's like 3d seemed hard enough. (laughs) It's going to be wild, man. It's going to be wild. But I think uh, I was stoked to have this conversation with you. I'm always happy to be on this podcast. It gets me invigorated. And honestly, it's part of what really gets me inspired to even finish off this day creatively and live tomorrow creatively is people like this podcast, like this conversations like this. And I love it. So awesome. Thanks. I love having you here, Chris. I, I ended last time we did this, I ended up quoting you a lot in further episodes. So okay. <laughs> I was like, Hey, remember when Chris was here and said all that interesting stuff. So now we'll have another source of interesting material and we'll see you at NAB. So, uh, I hope you guys are interested in some video stuff and you know what? I would actually love to hear from the people listening. How many of you have any interest in video at all? Because uh, you're about to hear a lot more about it, whether you do or not uh hashtag cameras or whatever thanks for joining us oh and sorry cameron wasn't here we forgot to address oh. that it's the first time he hasn't been on but he just was extremely busy so thanks, cool. thanks for filming in, chris next time see ya peace <laughs>